The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. For decades, Eric King has been designing award-winning landscapes that work with nature and encourage people to be outside. He is a landscape architect and co-owner of the residential design and build firm King Landscaping, serving the Atlanta area. He often appears on local and national garden shows and is a noted contributor for a variety of online and print media. King earned a master's degree in landscape architecture from the University of Georgia and an MBA from Georgia State University. He is the founder of the Landscape Design Program at Emory Continuing Education Center. This is episode 111, Creating Outdoor Spaces Children Love with Eric King on the Garden Question Podcast, an encore presentation and remix of episode 27. Eric, with families spending more time at home these days, how is that changing the home landscape? With people spending more time at home, they're realizing more things about their home and their yard, some good, some bad. They're discovering that they may not be able to use it in ways that they would like to use it. They may find that there are views that they don't like, that there are sounds from highways. It's just an interesting thing that occurs. You think you know something until you really look at it closely. As people begin to discover things they like, don't like about their yard, and they realize that they want to do more with it because they're spending more time at home, maybe a better place to eat outside or more interesting areas to play in as adults or as kids, they come together with those two things. They have more demands for the home and they have spent more time there, so they have a more critical eye about what they want to change. What works best, a structured or an unstructured type play spaces? Play spaces, there's a lot of research that's come out about how kids learn, how they grow and develop, and that the play spaces are a big part of that. There's a structured play space, which we're all familiar with. We probably grew up with monkey bars and jungle gyms and slides. Those are fixed, structured play spaces that the kids come in and use in a certain way. There's a lot of research now that shows that kids also need unstructured play. They need something unexpected. They need to go out and turn over a rock and find a salamander. They need to use fine motor skills to try to pick up sticks or make a little gnome house or a fairy garden. They need to look at butterflies that are dancing on a flower and the colors and the movement. What's really interesting is that it can actually affect brain development. If children have more time outside in an unstructured environment, their brain does several things. One of them is it opens up pathways to creativity and learning that uh, wouldn't have been there before. It's important to have both. You can have the playground. That's great. You can have some yard to run around on, but you also need random acts of nature that kids can discover on their own to create a more balanced and interesting, really beneficial environment for the kids. Sounds like a lot of creativity and discovery going on in that type of landscape. There is. There's a great book called Last Child in the Woods. A great book Richard Liu wrote. He really dives more deeply into the benefits of an unstructured play space and how it really does benefit children. 
he dives a lot more deeply into the science behind it than I do. There's just a whole new set of education that's opened up the last few years where schools are designing playgrounds in a different way. It's really a great time to be a landscape designer. It can feel like a huge job turning the outdoor space at home into a space that draws your kids outdoor to play. Talk about how do you leverage your existing outdoor spaces to create creative play areas. One of the most important things about getting children outside is it's a whole lot easier to pull them outside than it is to push them outside. You can tell them to go out and be gone for a half a day or a whole day like it probably was for you and I growing up. It's a lot easier if you make it engaging. And some of the ways you can do that Things that are pretty and appealing to adults are pretty and appealing to children. Comfortable furniture. Block unpleasant views. If there's a dumpster or something in your neighbor's yard you don't like, you can screen that with plants. You want to create a space that allows for movement through it. If you've got a big woods that's covered in ivy, well, I don't want to walk in there. Why would a child want to walk in there? How can you open the views up into the woods, create pathways, create a pile of boulders? Sometimes we'll take big rocks and just put them together that look beautiful. First thing kids do when they see a a big pile of big boulders is jump on top of them. Create a little nook within that, maybe a little secret spot that's comfortable that they can lean back and take a book and read. I think of it as, what would I want in a yard? I just become a child again. I remember walking across a log over a creek. That will always be fun to me. If you leverage your inner child and come up with something that you would want to go out and explore, I found that to be very effective. What about taking a survey of kids? Yeah, absolutely. There are things that are common that are pretty universal between children, but there are also things that are unique. Some kids really like imaginary play space, like a fairy gardens. I know boys and girls that like to create fairy gardens. Hide little stashes around the yard. You can get pretty little polished glass beads, maybe from a aquarium store, and you can put those under a log. You can find seashells and just tuck them in a certain spot. Get some nice, smooth little sticks and put them around the yard, and then just let the kids discover it on their own. It would be something specific to each child. Some kids really just love to run and kick a ball and chase. Well, that's going to drive the priority of having more of a lawn in that kind of space. Some kids, again, are readers. Or even if you're going to play a video game. To me, any time spent outside is better than time inside as a child. They have an hour of video game a day. If that's your rule, then give them a really great place outside to sit and do that. And then nature just finds a way of soaking in. They just understand more. They hear the sounds. It's the smells. It's the textures. It will get in and can be tailored to each child. Yeah, I would think that you could have an ongoing program where you're adding another element You were talking about sticks and colored pebbles and different things like that. But I would think there's opportunities then to add new points of discovery as time goes on. That would be never ending. There's a Mexican beach pebbles. You've probably seen those black, round, different size. Mm -hmm. They're fascinating to me. Everyone's different. They're smooth. They're like worry stones. You hold them in the palm of your hand and you can rub them. Sometimes they have embedded lines in them. I have endless fun looking through those. I always think I'm going to find an arrowhead when I'm outside. I think you're right. That can age very well with the child and and even with the adult, just have more interesting things around the yard. And as the kids get older, maybe you add a hammock, a zip line or a trampoline is more age appropriate. And even when they get older, kids, they're going to 
stretch their wings a little bit. They're going to want some space from mom and dad. Sure, put a little fire pit farther away from the house with big pieces of flagstone laid on the ground and let moss form between it. And you have a rustic fire pit. Then when the kids are in that sort of tween years, they can sit out there with their friends and still be at homes and have their own space. Are tree houses still a big thing? Tree houses will always be a big thing. This is my take on the treehouse. You can build big fancy ones with roofs on them and make it almost like a house up in a tree. That's great. I found, though, that kids tend to use outdoor spaces more that are more open and simple, almost like a platform up in a tree with a real simple railing. You could have a trap door in it and a ladder down. You could have sort of a rustic, like an Ewok village, a couple of rope bridge to another tree with another platform. Keep it fairly simple. Let them provide the imagination that turns it into a pirate's crow's nest or a Star Wars outpost. It's almost just like providing them a stage. In fact, we have built stages for families, like a platform three feet off the ground, 10 by 10 feet at the back of the yard, and the kids would put on productions back there and camp on it, and it was just a platform. They used it all the time. That's cool. I like that idea. You don't have to build an Airbnb up in Trita <laughs> to entertain your kids. No. I'd like to go to one of those. I know they have them around that are great. Yeah. The kids will make their own adventure as long as you just give them the opportunity and sometimes just get out of the way. Don't over-program it yourself. Yeah. Let them do that. Yeah. There's the old adage that they like to play with the box that the big expensive toy came in <laughs> rather than that toy. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's something to be said for that. How do you blend a home's existing landscape with a children's play space? That's a good question. And the challenge is that if you have a natural area, trees that have grown for, in some cases, decades, and then you've got a fully man-made environment, you have this house that's been completely structurally man-made, the landscape around that is usually fairly reflective of the home itself. Clean lines or, you know, modern house or more arts and craftsy, more different types of colors of plants. But it's still a fairly structured landscape. Clash becomes where those two meet. I found that the real key is that it's just a gradient. If you think of it, once you walk out of the house, the farther you get away, the more natural and organic the landscape should be. Right outside the house, we might do a cut bluestone patio that fits the character of the home with maybe a boxwood hedge around it. That fits the house. Then you might have some lawn and a play space. Between the lawn and the woods, if you plant a camellia that gets 8 to 10 feet tall, in a few years, you've now cut the woods off visually. To maintain that connection, I'd say do low plants along the lawn right up against the woods that look sort of natural or nearly native. Rubecchia, black-eyed Susans. Put some of those, maybe an autumn fern, a few native ferns. You want the transition to feel like it's not abrupt. And then you have a clear path that joins the two areas. I think it's also important to look at the sight lines into the native woodland. If you've had an old existing mature natural area, a woodland forest, then you've had a lawn there for a long time. Nature is going to grow toward the light, which is right on the edge of the lawn. It's going to form a green wall because photosynthesis is foods. There's oftentimes a dense canopy that once you pierce and go into the trees, it becomes more open. But along the edge, that's where everything wants to be. You have to go in and raise branches to open up the canopy, almost like it's a cathedral. If you can imagine sitting on the porch and looking out across the lawn into the woods, if you raise the area that you're looking into, then you have this depth of view, like you're looking down Notre Dame, get this cathedral, and it's this vaulted ceiling. The trees are spectacular. That takes some care and planning. You don't want to hurt the trees. You don't want to damage too much. 
Just think of it as a series of transitions that gradually move you from completely man-made to completely natural. Yeah, and in raising the canopies, you're talking about taking the limbs off on the bottom side of the tree, which probably is more of a mature tree to open that vision up. That's correct. You can do it yourself, but you definitely want to look up how to do that. UGA Cooperative Extension Service has got some great online publications. They'll tell you how to prune the trees and the right way to do it to keep them healthy. You don't necessarily need to take a whole tree out. In fact, I would caution against that. If you're going to open the view up, you start by taking the most bottom limbs out. You see the trunk and maybe some main branches, but the foliage is off to the sides. You can even leave it longer. I like to think of it as like a mullet. It's short in the front, long in the back. You can leave the branches low and dense by your property line because that might help screen views of your neighbor's yard. But down the center, you want it to feel open and inviting. And that's just selectively taking more and more bottom limbs off until you really can visually see into a space. You don't have to actually walk into a space to have it be part of your landscape. Just visually looking at it and feeling the connection is also another way to move through a space. I've seen kids take where you mass shrubs together that maybe will grow 10 or 12 feet tall or maybe larger, and they've grown together, and in the interior, there's a cavern. They discover that, and it becomes a whole new house or a new play area under that canopy. That's that's pretty cool to watch what all the creative things they turn that into. I did that growing up, and it's a blast. It's your own secret fort, and it's almost better the fact that it's not man-made playhouse. It becomes their creation, and we've done that with sticks. Well, when we're doing some clearing, we'll cut down different size pieces of wood and leave them there, and they'll make teepees out of them. They'll stack them together, overlapping, and make a fort. Same with bamboo. If we're clearing bamboo and it's thick bamboo, we'll cut it into 10, 12-foot sections, and they turn it into all kind of little secret play spaces. Yeah. Engaging the senses in children's play spaces is important. What strategies do you use to engage as many senses as possible? There's a couple things that we do to really engage all the senses. One of them would be the visual sense. That is color and movement. Color is great to do through a variety of flowers and bark. There are boulders different color stones you can bring in. There's a wide variety. And then the more plants and the more variety of flowers and blossoms, you also get more insects and butterflies and birds. Goldfinches will come in and feed on the seeds of a black-eyed Susan. That's just spectacular to see. There's a diversity that you can do through what they see. Also, in more of a natural area in nature, there might be 50 different plant species in an area that can be a few square meters because that's how nature works. That's also visually interesting to have that palette of all kind of different plants that are native to a forest, leaf textures, sticks. So that's fun. That's visually. Sound is going to be a big part of it. Sound, there's water. There's just something very soothing about water and very interesting. You can do that through things like uh, rain chains. If you have gutters and you can replace them with a chain with loops that directs the water down and it can go into a pot and then it might overflow or into a drain. That's engaging. You can get a fountain. We've done ponds that look natural that have little bubbling waterfalls that lead into them. That's a good sound. Wind chimes, they're great. All different sizes and textures. You get a little breeze going. That's really dynamic. There's another important sense that we try to draw uh, kids out and engage their senses with. And some wonderful old southern plants like gardenias. They're in most of classic southern gardens. There's some other plants. Uh, Osmanthus, there's a fragrant tea olive that smells nice. There's some vines, jasmine, that have good fragrance. That's a big part of it as well, is things that smell nice. Everything doesn't have to smell nice either. There's a a native plant that's usually used more south of here, Florida anise. It's got these bright red flowers that are 
not really that conspicuous. They're pretty, but they also smell like rotten fish. Now, as an adult, we think, oh, I don't want kids love that kind of stuff. They love to call their friends over and say, oh, smell this. And they're like, oh, gross. It's okay. And then that opens the opportunity to say, well, why would one flower smell sweet and one smell like something dead? We can talk about pollination, the different things that would pollinate each one. Pollinators. They are, right? So if something smells like it's something dead, you can bet it's probably attracting some sort of a fly or creature that would feed on uh, carrion, dead things. So this plant is mimicking that. It's drawing those insects in to pollinate it. It's an interesting lesson. Another way you can engage the senses is taste. I think everybody should have a couple blueberry bushes. They're easy to grow. They're pretty. They have some interest almost year-round. If you want to get a harvest in Atlanta area anyway, you would need to cover it with netting. Serenby has got blueberries planted along its walkways and sidewalks. They're just loaded with blueberries because there's enough diversity down there that the birds have other things to eat. There's just something fun about pulling food off and eating it in the wild. Oh, yeah, I'll have muscadines usually coming out of my ears. I look forward to that. <laughs> That's a great one. Figs, pretty easy yeah. to grow. Good way to engage the senses. How about lighting and fire? Lighting's come a long way. LED has, has really benefited what we do because it uses a lot less energy. The bulbs last a long time. I think it's important to understand there are consequences to lighting. If you point a lot of lights up into the air, it can add to the light pollution and make it so overall, as a community, you see fewer stars. You want to be wise with your lighting. What it does is tell a different story when you use outdoor lights it's a different story than you do during the day. In the daytime, you see everything. You see the neighbor's house. You see the power lines. You see a lot of things that you don't want to see. At night, you choose the story that you're going to tell. But you can uplight on a Japanese maple. You can have some lights that shine down onto your pathway. You can do those little patio string lights that hang over a space and create this really wonderful, intimate outdoor view. If you have a fountain, water is great to light at night. In the wintertime, when it's 6 o'clock and getting dark, if you have some lights outside, it'll draw both adults and children outside as well. And then when you're inside looking out, the lights turn the yard into part of the scenery that you can see. If you don't have enough outdoor lights, then the lights of the home bounce back off the windows and into the house. So it's just like a wall of darkness. It's like a whole new dimension in your garden. Yeah. It's a whole different feel. I love that. Yeah, and there's all kind of things out there now. I've got these polypropylene cube. They look like a plastic two-by-two-foot white cube during the daytime that works as a coffee table. Then at night, they light up and glow, and it's just this soft look around it. I like fire outside. We've done all kind of different shapes. Uh, fire pits with gas that you can turn on and get the flame that it's easy. We've done fireplaces that you build big fires in that you can sit around at night. And the light coming off of those, too, is really spectacular. Tell us how you see them engaged with the elements that you're talking about, like the fire and the lighting and the sound elements. I think the way they engage, it's a little bit different depending on that home and that family and, and what their priorities are. Some people just really love being outside and they're just trying to get their kids out more. Others don't go outside nearly as much. My job is to understand how much they're going to use it. If they're a family that doesn't like to go out much, then I'm going to put most of the elements closer to the house. So it's just walk out as easy as they can get to it. Then if that works, we can open up other areas. I don't know about you, but I loved fire growing up. I would light sticks on fire and write my name in smoke in the air. 
when daylilies, their flower dies and they dry out, they get these long tubes and you can put it in a fire and smoke will just start pouring out of one end. It's endless, the things that you can do. Now, I'm not saying you need to just start a fire and let your kids start playing with it without being supervised. It goes back to they need to have something they can interact with. Fires are good in water. Sure, you bet. If there's a pond or a fountain and you can change the flow of it. We've done these little waterfalls. One was into a swimming pool, added onto it with something that would recirculate the water back to the top. The kids would play more in the waterfall than they would in the pool. Do things like put rocks in there and watch how the water would change its course. They're also secretly learning. When you're doing that, they're discovering things about force and movement and water pressure. I found that the more you can give them space to engage with the element that you're designing, the more success they'll have. There are two other things that I found are really effective in engaging kids. One is the old-fashioned lawn. If you design a space where that will actually be used, close to the home, that's more level, that gets good sunlight, go ahead and invest in a good quality grass like a zoysia that will grow thick. And it's just never-ending fun for the kids to play on that. You don't need it everywhere. You don't need this grass donut going all the way around the house that you'll never use which incidentally is often there because the builder with a new home had to put something in to stabilize, to get their CO completed for occupancy. One of the easiest things to do is just put grass everywhere and a few bushes and pine straw. It doesn't mean that's where the grass is supposed to be. It's just where they could put it in to get their final inspection so people could move in. What I do is look at, should there even be grass everywhere? If there's a spot where we really want it, that it's not now, what can we do to, to grade the area to make it better, more usable? Put the grass there, have it healthy, have it nice. Kids will interact in that. They'll play games. They'll skip. They'll lay out in the sunshine and watch butterflies. I remember laying out and watching when the bats would come out. You just lay out there and how they swerve and dip and dive to go after the bugs. That's more inviting if you've got this really nice, soft, healthy carpet of grass. The other one is back to the woods. If you can create a view into it, if you can remove the things that are scary or dark or on the ground that might hide snakes, if you can open that up in a central play area, they will interact with that in ways that you don't even know. What type of materials work best in a children's landscape? For kids, I like to use materials that provide some interest visually. So we use a lot of boulders. These are stones that have been above ground. We call them field stone. And they were out in a field or in the woods. They have a patina. They're covered in lichen, different colors. They have mosses. They have interesting surfaces. If we're going to do a natural landscape, we can use those for steps to get up through the woods. We can dig them into a hillside and make them a natural bench to sit on. We use them for bridges if we have to go over a small dry creek bed that we're creating. Those engage them. Kids are drawn to them. If you put a boulder out there that's the size of a refrigerator and a couple others also big nearby and give them some ability to jump from one to the other, they'll play on that all day long. It's not the easiest thing to do because you have to have equipment and put it in the right space. It looks great. It's really been a great tool uh, to draw them out. I like to use logs. If we do have to take some trees out within the local codes, sometimes take those logs and overlap them and create almost like a balance beam that the kids can walk from one log to the other. It also looks natural and inviting and draws them in. If you're going to do a pathway, we use a crushed slate product and it packs down really well and it's a light blue color. It's different than the wood, so it creates a access point. It creates a, a visual organizing element I can use once I have the path that runs through the woods. Then I know everything else. I know where to put the low plants, the ferns and stuff are along the pathway. Then I can put the taller stuff farther out and then the tallest stuff where I need to screen the views along the edges of the property. 
One of the most important elements is the pathway, and that can be, again, crushed slate. There's a really nice pea gravel that we like to use for that. Uh, Sometimes it's just hardwood mulch. We also will use big, flat stepping stones. That's called flagstone. Those are more smooth on the surface, and those can put so that you just step from one to the other. Those are some of my favorite materials to use. The plants, again, need to be visually interesting. If it's interesting to you and me, it's probably going to be interesting to kids, too. What's an appropriate hardscape material to use in outdoor spaces? If I'm doing a rustic patio sort of out in the woods, I like to use big pieces of flagstone. I mean, big, like three, four feet across. Create a a fairly level area. It needs to have a little bit of slope for drainage, just a few inches. And then we put them on the ground and put crushed stone between them. And that can be a patio for any number of things. It looks like it belongs in a natural area. It's big, chunky pieces of stone with moss that grow between it. It looks almost like, who knows, maybe the settlers put it there before we were there. The retaining walls, I like to use big natural boulders, different sizes and shapes, and then we put them together. So it almost looks like a rocky outcrop. So the kids can imagine they're just out in the woods somewhere and they found this old stone wall. We'll use that if we need to transition to create either terraces for the steps or for a patio space. There's two kinds of steps I really like to use outside. One are the boulder step treads. Those are natural field stone that are two feet wide, six inches thick that you can stack on top of each other, overlap them like steps. And then another one that we use, uh, call it crab orchard, but it's a stone that's been quarried and it's pretty smooth on the top and makes a good, nice step that's easier to walk on. And there's no mortar. We can dig the ground, compact it, level it, put them in place. It looks like it belongs out there in natural area. I use that everywhere. I use that up close to the house, out in the woods. It's just great. And you can see the veins in the rock. It's really pretty. There are some pavers that I really like now made out of concrete, and they have different colors and textures and shapes. For every yard, it's really about what fits that space. If it's closer to the house for a small yard, then it might be sort of a tumbled cobblestone paver that looks a little more natural, but also picks up some of the character of the house. It's a gradient. From the time you walk out to the time you're at the far end of the yard, the farther away you get, the more natural and organic the landscape can and should be. When you were talking about the large flat rock on the ground, I could just see a child out there with chalk on that too. Places to mark that up. Of course, that washes right off in the next rain or with a water hose. I've seen that, especially those that are three and four feet across. And that hits on another really good topic. It's providing other more programmed things for kids that play off of the natural area. You could get a outdoor chalkboard put up out there for the kids to draw on. Sometimes we'll create a little bit of a shed roof on top to keep it dry. It was meant to be outside. We've done that with sound gardens where you would hang up different things that the kids can bang on with sticks to make different sounds. All kinds of stuff. Cowbells, spoons that when they hit, they bump up against each other. Pots and pans. That's the sound garden. It's also the band name taken off of that. There really is a, a garden for sound for kids to explore. That can be outside, maybe one of the sitting areas where you, you have the chalkboard and the sound garden. As the kids get older, they make outdoor ping pong tables. They actually make an outdoor pool table. You might want to keep that a little closer to the house, but if you're trying to get your teenagers outside, not a bad idea. Tell us about some of the ways you leverage nature to reduce the maintenance in the natural areas. Nature's been taking care of itself for a long time, and it did just fine before we came along. As we've lived in this world, humans have spread and developed cities and towns. We've brought a lot of good things with us. We've brought a lot of crops from one part of the world to another. We've brought wood products that we've been able to grow in different areas that have really been popular. We've also brought a lot of not good stuff, like privet that we brought over as a shrub. Kudzu, we brought over for erosion control. All right, that made sense at the time. 
Those kind of things now have intermixed with nature. We've also put more pollution in the air. We've put more chemicals on the ground. At this point, nature is trying to do its best to survive and grow. If there's an overgrown forest nearby or you have any trees in your yard, there's a good chance that you've also got things that don't belong there or that maybe the plants are struggling. If we go back to how nature works, we can do things that allow the cycle to come back, that allow nature to plenish itself. There's a couple basic principles that I like to go by. One, if it falls in the yard, it stays in the yard. If leaves fall, if sticks fall, they're an input variable. If you take that organic matter away, you're removing a variable from a balanced equation. For any kind of a natural area, even a few trees together, and there's no grass under it, and there's just any kind of native plant mix, whatever leaves fall there should stay there. Don't go in and blow them all off and put pine straw down. If you bag the leaves up, take them to the street, and they pick them up and take them to a compost pile, or in the city, if they haul them through an internal combustion engine to a landfill, and then you bring pine straw that was gathered in South Georgia or Florida, bundled up, shipped to Atlanta, and put it right back on the same spot, that's not sustainable. Leaves fall, you can mow them, you can shred them, but spread them in areas that are more natural. If sticks fall, make a brush pile. Somewhere behind some bushes that are out of the way, just gather them and don't send them out. That's one. It's just to create a system that's more self-sustaining. The more shade you have, the fewer weeds you're going to have. Sun is food. Sun is the fuel. If you create more shade with tree canopies, let the trees mature or maybe add a few more trees, you create more shade, you'll have fewer weeds, you'll have more natural mulch that forms. That's nature's way. You want to remove plants that don't belong, like privet, eleagnus, ligustrum. There are some others that you can learn. There's probably five or six should be on everybody's hit list that you want to get rid of. And then bring in some more native plants. If you have a forest of pine trees, well, you need to add a few oak trees and a few hickories. Little babies. Put everything small. Let it get established. Let it grow. So one is just to mimic nature's cycle if you have a woodland area. If you have English ivy, just get rid of it. You can get goats or sheep. You can mow it down and cover it up with newspaper and leaves. It doesn't belong. What you want is a diverse forest floor of things that belong there. That's nature's way, more of a woodland area. Using nature to leverage the natural areas in your yard. If you don't have natural areas, you can create them. It's a longer-term game. If you have a back corner of your yard, has lawn or some bushes, but nobody goes back there and nobody use it, put in a few trees, as small as you can get them. Take them out of their pot, make sure their roots aren't girdling, that's twisting around and around. Plant them, water them the first year, they'll be on their own. You'll forget about it. In three to five years, they'll be 20, 30 feet tall. To create shade, then the grass can thin out on its own. Then you can put some more leaves down there that fall. A few more years, you can put some ferns, and you really can bring nature back. So that's one. The other is, if you're going to leverage how nature works, just stop fighting it. If you've got a window that's three feet off the ground, don't plant a Burford holly that wants to grow 30 feet tall under that window. You'll be forever pruning it, and it's like the baby duck trying to keep a baby duck as a baby duck. You just keep trying to squeeze it and squeeze it and keep it small, and eventually it, it dies. It doesn't work. Try to avoid things that require internal combustion engines, and you do that by planting things that work backwards. It's a purpose-driven landscape. You work backwards from the mature height. If you know you want a plant that matures at three feet tall, you don't want to block a window. It's full sun, and you know you want it evergreen. You can go down the list, and then you're picking out something for a specific purpose. You don't just put a plant there that's three feet tall because it's the cheapest one at the nursery because it grows really fast. In a few years, you're forever pruning it. That's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results. You will always be locked in. 
to trying to stop nature. The term is ecological succession, and that's how nature wants to move. It's never static. Nature is a constant movement. The more that you try to stop it, the more energy it takes. The mowing grass is stopping nature. If you were to let it grow, it would become a pasture. It would become small trees and pine trees and then bigger trees. And then eventually it becomes this open canopy of hardwood forest, which would be in in this area, oaks and hickories and beaches. That's what nature wants to be with a diversity of plant material. Plant things that are the easiest to take care of, that are adaptable, don't get caught up in the, oh, it's a wet year, so I have to plant only things that like it wet, or, oh, it's a dry year, so I need to plant cactus. You want to go with adaptable plants that you don't need to spray, that you need very little pruning and care, and that can just grow on their own because you understand the size and the job of each plant. That's a much more nature-friendly way, and that's leveraging what nature is trying to do. Are you familiar with grain mulching? I am. It can mean several things. One is that the mulch hasn't been composted. I've heard it used for that term. The other is that there needs to be something on the ground at all times. If it's ever bare ground, it will erode. We'll get in our streams and rivers and you'll lose your topsoil. You want something on the ground. It can be lawn. It can be pine straw or mulch or it can be plants. It can be ground covers. What I try to do with the design is reduce the need over time for more mulch, reapplying pine straw or hardwood mulch. Hopefully, you'll be able to use a lot of the leaves from trees in your yard. You'll be able to keep those. But there are areas where you're going to need mulch. If you're bringing bales of pine straw in every year, that's really inefficient. If I can fill up an area with a ground cover that grows together, then that's the mulch. It's done. I'd really like to try to get a yard that might need 20 bales of pine straw when we're done, down to two bales of pine straw in two to three years out when it begins to mature and grow together. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy to do that. It is. The drawback is it costs more up front. That's where it takes time with your client or with people to understand you're either going to pay up front for more plants that will grow together or you're going to pay down the road to continue to reapply mulch. Yeah, that's a case to me to let plants mass together rather than trying to prune them into individual balls or let each plant stand on its own. You're, you're letting a mass or a grouping of plants stand together and cars less mulch when you do that. It does. What you're facing is the challenge of understanding of the level of skill of the maintenance that's being done to that yard. If the homeowner's doing it or if a maintenance company's doing it, there's an inertia. There's a way that's been done forever. And so the maintenance companies typically keep doing things the way they were done in the past. If you want a group of boxwoods to grow together into a hedge, then you've got to let each one fill in between each other. And and then you just take the top and the sides. You're creating meatloaf. But what they do is once you plant it and they're individual plants, they're going to try to keep them individual plants. So they're going to turn them into green meatballs. I think that's an old Walter Reeves term. One of the way I describe it to people is if you're going to have to prune it all, I say you don't want any meatballs unless it's specifically like an entranceway to a house. You might want to have two plants that are meant to be round and perfect as a way to call attention and draw you into the house. If you're trying to do a hedge or if it's just plants that mature at three feet tall, just let them grow together. Don't ever touch them. Yeah, maybe hand prune a few wild hairs. You want meatloaf. You don't want meatballs. And meatballs take more work. They don't look as nice. It's counterintuitive, but that's the way the industry has been geared. And a lot of homeowners also have come to sort of think that's the way the plant should look. When you look at a house and there's 20 different shapes, because you're never going to get all the plants the same because they're nature. They're all different sizes and shapes and they're pruned and just stop. Just stop the pruning. Plant is the wrong plant and gets too big. Just take it out. Put in the one that's right. 
leave it alone. If you want it specifically, there are times where I do want a clean hedge, a nice clean line of green, then make sure they understand that it's meatloaf, not meatballs. <laughs> I like the meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> How do you balance mosquito management in the children's garden with beneficial insects? Mosquitoes this year have just been terrible. A wet year, a lot of mosquitoes. And mosquitoes we have are one of those things that don't belong here. They're from another part of the world. So they're thriving here. Well, we got a lot of insects and a lot of butterflies and bees in our ecosystem. Yeah, there's the challenge. If you want your children to be outside, if you want to be outside and enjoy the yard more, but you're getting eaten up by mosquitoes, there has to be some balance. What I like to do if it's an area near the house where you're going to be spending a lot of time, try to get at least two big fans. They can be overhead fans if you have a wood arbor or you can construct something overhead. It can also just be a couple of posts that you put in the ground, maybe six by six pressure treated that you can mount fans that are rated to be outdoors. I've got a couple in my yard and they're about two and a half, three feet wide and they oscillate and they can spray mist. You get two of those going, that's going to chase away most of the mosquitoes. Getting rid of things like English ivy can really help a yard. I've seen that firsthand. When we've cleared yards of ivy, the numbers of mosquitoes absolutely drop. There are mosquito misting systems. They're made from pyrethrins, which is from chrysanthemums. And yeah, it's an organic. It's from a plant. It's something that was formed in nature. It's very toxic to insects. A lot of different insects, over over 100 different insects will be killed along with mosquitoes. If you have one of those automatic misting systems that just sprays, when you do that, you're wiping everything out. And then if you ever turn your system off, you really are going to have a lot of mosquitoes because all the insects that would have fed on the mosquitoes and the other bats and turtles and frogs that fed on the other insects that are all gone, now you've created a void and nature hates a void. So you'll have more mosquitoes than you've ever had. If you're going to have one of those systems, just get one that you can manage, that you put it only where you need it and try to limit its use. There are some companies that just spray around the perimeter of the property the male mosquitoes are going to leapfrog in. And if you can put something that's toxic to them or just around the perimeter, then theoretically, when they land on that or hit that barrier, then they die before they get into your yard. There will always be some collateral damage. Some people put DEET on the insecticide. Some people don't like to use DEET. More healthy of an ecosystem you have in your yard, meaning the more diversity, the more room for frogs and toads and bats and all kinds of things that would eat mosquitoes. The more predators you have in your yard, the fewer mosquitoes you'll have. I found that in my yard where I restored a lot of it and had more natural area. Of course, you also have to do the obvious. Check regularly. Make sure your gutters aren't holding water. You can't have standing water. You just have to get rid of that. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Well, one of the things I wish they would do differently is, as a designer, when you're looking at the front of the house, it's not your job to show off how many different plants you can buy. It's your job to think about what your purpose is. And your purpose is to make the house look good. That's why you're there, is because there's a house there. You're designing a landscape. So for the front yard, curb appeal really means make the house look good. And that's using the landscape, whether you open up sight lines to the windows and doors and draw your eye to the front door, whether it's what you're going to conceal or whether it's keeping it simple. One of the things I wish they would do different is just understand that as a designer, we're almost to be invisible. Make it look like the landscape should have been no other way, that that's exactly how it should have been. And the other is to listen more to what the client wants, because it's several things that happen. One is the client will say, I want roses. I want a bunch of cut roses, hybrid tea roses, as an example. When I talk a little and delve a little deeper, they really just want color. They don't necessarily want roses, but that's the plant they associate with color. 
poses a pretty high maintenance. It's up to me as the designer to understand what they really want, not just what they say, because sometimes those are two different things. The other is some designers don't listen at all and already have in their mind a design and what they're going to do. And the client is just almost a secondary thought. They just really go in and try to force something that doesn't belong there. So as designers, I think it's incumbent upon us to listen, understand, and then to leverage what the site gives us as best we can. Understand value to the client. If there are more cost-effective ways to deliver the same product, then let's show it to them. Let's design it as a possibility and make sure they understand that there are options and that those options come at a price and they might like something that's more cost-effective just as much. Tell us a funny garden or landscape story. When I started out in this business, I was like a lot of other people. I had a pickup truck and a shovel, hired some guys to work for me, and we did maintenance and some light landscaping. There was one guy, bless his heart, he tried really hard. But there was one time where I described the house we'd worked at. It was we planted a few bushes and we needed to change something. Drew it out, told him what the bushes were, where they were going to move, sent him on his way. About two weeks later, the client called me back and said, ask when are we going to come by to take care of it? And I thought we had. I talked to the guy and looked at it and then I rode by and he went to the wrong house. <laughs> Somebody must have come home and just seen something that just changed in their yard for no reason at all. I went up and knocked on their door. It turns out they actually loved it. So it, it worked out. But I just remember thinking what an experience it would be to come home and just find something different in your yard with no explanation for that. <laughs> Uh, he also would try to do the least amount that he could when he was mowing. If there were things in his way, he would mow around them. Like, uh, let's say there's a, a log out in the yard. Instead of moving the, the log, he would mow around it. Well, that's not sustainable. But he would also do that with newspapers. I remember seeing him, instead of just picking up and tossing the newspaper on the driveway, he would try to mow close to the newspaper and then it just got sucked into it and shot it out all over the yard like confetti. So then we're out there trying to rake it up. Those are the early lessons you learn that make you appreciate when you do find good people. He was a good guy. It was just not a good fit. When you do find good people, it's a game changer. I would not be doing this today if I had not found the people that I've worked with. I've worked with them for decades now. It's a completely different situation. What is your earliest garden memory? Working with my mom out in the yard, she would carry me around. I was a toddler and she would just put me down uh, next to her out in the sun and she would weed the yard. She got centipede, which people don't grow much anymore. She found some cuttings that the neighbor had put in the trash pile. And so she went around the yard and stuck them in one by one. And then they rooted and they grew together. And so she'd just plop me down next to her and she'd pull weeds and I'd just play in the grass next to her. And occasionally I'd try to pull a weed too. It's more, I just enjoyed being outside in the sun on the grass in the landscape. I was certainly of no help. I know I was more of a detractor. It's just a really good memory. Why did you decide to pursue the landscape architecture horticultural profession? You know, I think I fought being a landscaper for a while. I didn't really see it as a career path. I went down the typical route in college, a business major, and worked in food service, and I was terrible at that. I was in the master's program at Georgia State to get my MBA and just realized halfway through that I couldn't spend much time indoors, that I just needed to be outside. So I finished the program and then started my own business. 
for the record, is a terrible idea. I should have worked for somebody else. There's so much that you learn. If people are out there and thinking of getting in the industry, I highly recommend, even if it's an internship, work for somebody else, work for a good company. If you have to pay them to tag along for one of the really good either maintenance or install companies, it will pay you back tenfold to learn from somebody else. Tried that for a while. Did the Master Gardener program back in the day with Walter Reeves and Gary Pfeiffer. Went to Gwinnett Technical College, took a couple classes, and then eventually went back and got my master's in landscape architecture. Worked for somebody else for a couple years, and then I came back to this is what I love to do. I realized this is my world. I love plants. I love creating things. It's almost like I'm sculpting outside. Every yard is a sculpture in three dimension. We're changing the land. We're creating elevation change. We're creating rooms and colors and textures. And I love doing this. Once I sort of made peace with the fact that, hey, I'm a landscaper. I don't have to own a Fortune 500 company. Business took off and my peace of mind took off. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? See, one of them would have to be Walter Reeves, just because that man works so hard. He just never quits. He's always learning new things. He's insatiable. He wants to know. He wants to just be really good at his craft. I think that's been a, a really important person for me. I worked for a while at Scapes, and everybody over there was great. Evan Rogers, Matt Michio, Pete Wilkerson. Those are people that honed their craft over years and years and have fantastic design sense and really good client skills and really care about the job. I think that was, it's just about doing the right job. If I didn't put enough budget in there to do it the way I wanted to, it doesn't matter. You do it the right way. And if you lose money on a job, you lose money on the job and you learn and go to the next one. The standard that never changes is there is only one way to do it. It's the right way. And soil amendments and the grading and the drainage, you do it right or you don't do it. That was a really good lesson. Learned a lot from working over there. The other would be my foreman on the job, Rafa. So he's my partner in every sense in that I wouldn't be doing this without him. And he's brilliant, has an amazing story about coming over from Mexico and family that he's raised here and the life he's lived. His girls, his daughters have served in the military and he's just an amazing human being, Rafa. He's, he's phenomenal. I'd say those were probably the top of the list. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Not planning enough for drainage. You cannot put in enough preparation for proper drainage. You can't have too many drains. You can't have enough dry creek beds. So that will sink a landscape design. If you don't do it right and areas stay too wet, to try to come back and fix it, that can be so expensive. If we're doing a pathway with crushed stone and put in a dry creek bed along one side to catch all the water and just direct it where you need it to go. Over-engineer it, add the better soil amendments, double-check the grades. It begins and ends with drainage and water. Either too much or not enough will sink a design. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have many happy places. I have a woodland area with a trail that winds through it where I can watch my trillium come up in the spring and bloodroot and know that winter is nearing its end. The renewal process continues. I've got a beautiful zoysia lawn that I love to roll around on. Even now with my adult children as rustle over a football or my dog chases a frisbee, I have a beautiful patio with a fire pit that we can sit outside and enjoy together. And I would even amend it to say that in my house, I have my yard. I have become more and more aware of the importance of opening up the views from the house to nature. That has become increasingly important to me. You can do all this beautiful work outside, but if you really don't see it when you're inside, 
which is where we all spend most of our time, then you're not leveraging the landscape. Now, when I look at my yard, I took out 24 feet of wall, including a brick fireplace, and put in floor-to-ceiling glass windows that open right onto a patio. When we're sitting inside, it is an entire wall of nature, of green, of birds. In my house, I have my yard. That has probably been the greatest joy, is that nature is so much more a part of our inside life. That's been transformative. I would think so. That's my dream, to open my house up to the surrounding outdoors. You can do it, and you know this, that the darker the colors, the more invisible they become. All these windows are painted black. Even the wall around it is a dark color. If you have white mullions on your windows, every one of those is stopping your view. Whereas if you take mullions out and if you paint the trim darker colors, it all disappears. Instead, what you notice is what's outside. You don't notice the window itself. Kind of like the black chain link fence versus a silver chain link fence. The black one disappears. Yep. Same with porch railings. If you have a wood deck and you have wood pickets out there that are painted white, you know, it's like you're in a giant playpen. If you can do black aluminum with aluminum railing or if budget allows cable rail or similar system, that's a big step to bring in the outside inside. What are your future plans for you, Gordon? I want to keep adding more native plants. I have long neglected the Georgia Native Plant Society. I want to go on some of their plant rescues. There are just so many great native plants, and you can plant them pretty densely. You know, in nature, they would be growing inches apart sometimes. That's one, is to fill it up with more native plants. Most of my yard now, I've been in here long enough where it's pretty well established at this point. It's the woodland area that I want to continue to enhance. We have chickens, so I would like to create a little more of an outside chicken run where we can let them out more and not have to worry about foxes or coyotes, you know, which we put them back in at night. I'm always worried that that twilight period, something might snatch them. That'd be great to have more room for the chickens to be happy. Do you have a favorite plant? I do. My favorite plant is a white oak. They're everywhere in a forest, and they're really important. We don't talk about them much. We don't use them much. I think probably they must be difficult to transplant. Their leaf is beautiful. It's not too big, so it lets more light through. As you get older, the bark is shaggy. To me, it's an open structure, and it's sort of the backbone of the forest. I think it's just a beautiful tree. Now, I know you love to teach, and at Emory, you've got a class that you developed. Tell us about that. That's at the Emory Continuing Education Center. I got in touch with them years ago, and they had a couple of design classes, but they were one-off classes. And I just struck up a relationship and asked them if they would be willing to develop a landscape design certification program, and they were. Over the course of years, I did that along with Holly Brooks, my business partner, and we came up with a curriculum that spanned everything from uh, site analysis and design to the landscape design fundamentals, plant knowledge, hardscapes, the elements of how to render a plan, and then finally a capstone project where the students, after multiple classes and some were Saturday classes, some were night classes, would pick one project and then design it from start to finish. And that was really rewarding because the people who took it were genuine fans of landscape. They wanted to learn. They weren't being forced to take it. Designers from other companies who came, we had home enthusiasts who wanted to do their own gardens all over the spectrum with the talent. What it helped me to do was to really crystallize what it means to create a design and to be able to articulate that design 
to somebody much more quickly than I had in the past. When you teach, there's a reason for everything. And after going over it and refining it, now I can tell somebody the importance of having some native plants in their yard or why they want to try to keep as much of the rain that falls on their yard in their yard, why you want to keep plants a certain height and, and how you decide what plant to go in what spot. I can get there much quicker because I've had to teach it. We've also inspired a lot of students. Many of them have started their own business. It's great to have people in the industry that have a core knowledge base. Some people say, well, aren't you just teaching your competition? I would say, yeah, there's plenty of work in this city. If we can just get the people who are the serious good designers and who know how to install it, we can weed out the people that are not serious about it. That would be great. I would love that world. Plus, I have run into people who talk to both me and my former students. In the end, they say, well, why would I use the student when I can use the teacher? Now we've turned the class over. We've got some other instructors, and it's still a great program. If anybody's interested, they can learn more about it through uh, the Emory Continuing Education Center. Eric, tell us about King Landscaping and how people may connect with you. King Landscaping itself has been a lifetime journey for me just to understand how nature works and leverage it to design landscapes that are sustainable, that look good, and that make people happy. It's been a long journey for me to get there because nature is an amazing, wonderful, complex thing. The journey itself has brought me to the point now where after about 30 years, people that I've worked for, new people can look into my information and if they feel like it's a good fit, they reach out to me. I have a website, kinglandscapingatl.com, that shows a lot about who I am and what I do. I have a business partner, Holly Brooks, and together we just take one yard at a time and design it and build it. It's a lot of fun. People can reach me directly. Uh, my mobile number is 678-262-7117. We do have some certain criteria that we're looking for. We charge for a landscape design, and those can range anywhere from $1,000 to $1,500. And our minimum job size is $25,000, and it goes up to hundreds of thousands. It's really uh, difficult to determine the cost of a job until we've actually done the plan. So the plan is the roadmap. That's what drives everything. We want to be upfront with people and let them know that we're set up to do large-scale projects with we have a lot of crew and equipment and really good people that are trained well, and we can do everything outside. So the bigger the project, the more complex, the more we shine and the better value we are. This has been episode 111, Creating Outdoor Spaces Children Love, with Eric King on the Garden Question Podcast, an encore presentation and remix of episode 27. Thank you, Eric. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.